Good morning. The Lord be with you. Merciful God, blessed Trinity, be with us this morning. Amen. So I have bad news for you today. Today, you get a systematic theologian preaching on Trinity Sunday. The only thing worse for you would have been if this was a Sunday where I had to preach on Liverpool Football Club's tactical evolution over the last 10 years. Believe me, we'd be here for hours. That's the bad news. The good news is this. This is the first sermon I've preached here that doesn't have an Augustine quote in it. Uh, Thank you for some of you saying, oh, (laughs) all right. Now, I I teach and I write about theology for a living. And one of, it's a real job. And one of the first things I usually hear when I teach about the Trinity is this. The word Trinity is not in the Bible. You ever heard that? Now, usually after a couple, you know, But after that, a couple of words that are also not in the Bible come into my mind. But this raises an interesting issue, doesn't it? There's a lot of stuff that we believe and that we do, especially as Anglicans, that you can't just really pick a single Bible verse that explicitly states that something or other should be the case, right? Very often, and this is something I tell my students, so I shouldn't do that with my hand, (laughs) students a lot, to understand the Bible theologically, We need a greater range of biblical reasoning, right? We have to expand our biblical imaginations, seeing the Bible as a rich ecosystem of beauty. Now think about ecosystems for a minute. There are at least two ways to go into an ecosystem like a forest, right? Suppose you're a logger and you're going into a forest. You approach the trees for a particular purpose, right? to cut them down and saw them up so they can be used as raw material for building. And there's a time for that, if it's done in the right way. But now suppose you are an ecologist. You have a different job if you're an ecologist. You go into the ecosystem like a forest in order to see how it works. Not to use it, but to learn how things that live and breathe inhabit the place. Here the forest is not approached as material for building but a living world that one seeks to understand in order to gain an appreciation for how the inner dynamics operate. Now we can approach the Bible in each of these two ways. Sometimes we can approach the Bible as raw material that we can cut up to build some kind of arcane theological structure. Narratives, poems, parables, and all the thing, the good stuff that's in the Bible then get flattened out into planks that are all the same size. Now, the issue with that is if all we see are planks, we don't know if a piece of wood came from an oak or a pine or a birch or something else. All we see is raw material. But we can also approach the Bible like ecologists, recognizing that the world of the Bible has a biodiversity of its own. Through it, we see an integrated display of what God is communicating to his people with various modes of communication testifying to a unified divine voice. And through these various different accounts of stories and narratives and all that stuff, laws, we hear the voice of our triune God. And for that, we have to do a lot more than just know biblical facts. But this raises another question. 
How are we supposed to hear the voice of God in the text of Scripture? We are creatures. We have a beginning and an end, working with these three-pound wads of meat between our ears that we call our brains, right? God is fundamentally unlike us. God is not a creature. God is the creator. God has no beginning, has no end. God is outside of time, has no limitations, cannot be captured and put into a box, and is fundamentally beyond us. Now imagine an ant trying to understand human culture. Ant like the bug, not the relative, right? I guess some relative. Anyway, it, it is beyond the abilities of an ant to do so, right? You don't find very many sociologies of humankind written by ants. But the gap that exists between ants and humanity is actually much smaller than the gap that exists between humanity and God. Now, this is really important because we run into trouble when we forget this. And that trouble is called idolatry. Idolatry can look like a lot of different things, but one particularly tempting version of, of idolatry is when we forget that God is not a creature and make God look a lot more like us. This is particularly dangerous when Christian leaders make God look a lot like them. If we forget that God is fundamentally different than us and instead choose to make God look more like some of us than others, then all of a sudden, all of our actions and ambitions have a divine stamp of approval. You can do whatever you want. I'm reading a Stephen King book that's precisely about this, right? It's called Under the Dome. That's not in my sermon. Anyway, if God... <laughs> get it together. And if God looks more like some of us than others of us, then those left out are put in a more vulnerable position with regard to those who are not left out. As Reverend Amy Peeler puts it, all humans suffer when God is more like some than others. Now the good news, as we're going to see by the end of the sermon, is that God does not look like any of us, whether one subgroup of humanity or all of it. It's actually precisely the other way around. We look like God. We look like God. Or more precisely, we are made in the image of the Son of the Father who stepped into time and space to be one of us as the perfection of what it means to be human. That's a lot. We'll get there. We're getting ahead of ourselves. God is fundamentally unlike us. So how can we hear his voice in the Bible? Think of a parallel sort of question. How do you know what's going on inside someone's mind? How do you know what's going on inside someone's mind? My friends tell me that I famously do not have a poker face, right? And it's bad, bad for me. One, I was once on a panel for a book when someone gave a paper that I thought was not great. And I thought I would be polite and not comment on that paper and focus on the positives instead. And I thought I did a really good job until my friends came up to me and said, wow, you really didn't like so-and-so's paper, huh? How did they know? My lack of a poker face betrayed me. We often know what's going on inside someone by the actions they perform, especially if these are characteristic actions for that person. And that's how it is with God. We know this God who is outside of time and space and beyond all creation through the ways that God has chosen to act within time and space and with regard to his creation. God acts and God is revealed. That's what we mean by revelation. 
Now, the Trinity is really important here because when God acts in time and space to be with us, God does not cease to be exactly who he is. God steps into our world not by taking something away from himself, but by adding something on. To help us see this, I want to introduce you to, this. hang with me, two super important theological words that help us think through the Trinity. Just two. There's no quiz. These two words are the words procession and mission. Procession and mission. Okay, now I know that you're tempted to glaze over when I start getting nerdy, but hang with me, hang with me. When you think of procession, word number one, think of the word fullness. When you think of procession, think of the word fullness. Fullness, what is fullness? You experience fullness when it feels like nothing is missing. Think of a meal with friends where everyone is fully at ease with one another. Think of your greatest achievements. Now, I've recently found out that some people feel fullness when they're holding a baby or a puppy or some other critter-like entity. (laughs) Same category. These are all creaturely clues of what the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit enjoy in eternity, all the time, and in a totally different way. A beautiful statement of this is found in John 17, 5. And now, this is Jesus praying, and now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. There was glory enjoyed between the Father and the Son before the world began. That glory is a fullness that is beyond measure. It is the glory, joy, love, and blessedness of a God who needs nothing, yet graciously gives us everything. And the way we talk about that fullness is with the language of processions. You may have noticed that in our creed, the Nicene Creed, we recite every week, which was written all the way back, by the way, in 381. Well, the this version two, the revision. That creed provides for us all of the fundamental guardrails for how all Christians in all places and in all times should think about the Trinity. It talks about the Father, the maker of heaven and earth, and of, quote, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father along with many other images of the way the Son relates to the Father outside of space and time. And then we encounter the Holy Spirit, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. Now, though we say that every week, it may be a bit confusing, right? But the nuts and bolts of processions is that there is a from that's involved. One comes from another. If you want a really lovely depiction of this, have a look at your bulletin. Pastor Steph depicted processions beautifully for us. In class, I usually just do, like, marker. This is much better than whatever, anything I do, right? The Son, right, right here, is from the Father, right? Kids tend to be from their parents, right? The Son proceeds from the Father. There's the arrow, right? And the particular kind of procession is that he was eternally begotten, like our creed says, That's the arrow right there from the Father to the Son, begotten. And the Spirit is from, there's that word, from the Father and the Son. Two arrows to the Spirit. That's a lot of controversy there we won't get into. 
Usually that procession is thought of like a breath or a wind. Or if you want to get real nerdy, for those of you who haven't glazed over, a spiration. That's the arrows from the Father to the, and the Son to the Spirit. And the Father is not from anyone. There are no arrows that are going to the Father, right? They're, the Father is not from anyone. No arrows point to him, only from him. Okay, stick with me just a little longer. Have you wondered why we call the God that we worship Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Why those names? Why those names? That's complicated, but we got to remember that these are absolutely unique names for a God who is emphatically not a creature like us. We're the ants, remember? What makes the Son the Son is that the Son is begotten from the Father and nothing else. What makes the Spirit the Spirit is that the Spirit is breathed out from the Father and the Son and nothing else. It's because they enjoyed these relationships, relationships from all eternity and completely apart from any aspect of creation. Once again, we have to be careful of the danger of idolatry here. It's so tempting to think of these persons of the Trinity as just like us because we use the same words, right? I'm a father. But remember, we're using creaturely words that describe us to describe a being who is not a creature at all. We do the best we can, knowing that we must not box God up for our own agendas. God's Trinitarian life is a full life of its own, an eternal glory and love shared amongst Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The amazing part of that is this. God now welcomes us into that glory that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have always already enjoyed. This is the heart of the gospel. The Father sends the Son and the Spirit to welcome us, to welcome us as strangers into the blessedness of God's own life. Now, our 2 Corinthians reading ends like this. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all, be with you all. So, right? Notice how each member of the Trinity is noted in an effort to describe what the fullness of our lives as Christians ought to be like. All of those things that that 2 Corinthians text says are descriptions of lives lived within the blessedness of the Trinity, right? To know Christian fullness, we must know Trinitarian fullness. Or again, note in the Matthew 28 reading what we're baptized into. What do we enter into when we're baptized? Into the name, the life of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But to understand this, we need the other concept. We already dealt with processions. Now let's talk about missions. When you think of missions, a procession, think of fullness. When you think of mission, think of sending. When you think of mission, think of sending. Procession, fullness, mission, sending. Imagine these arrows in your bulletin extending into our own sanctuary, basically. A mission describes what God does when God steps into space and time to be with us. A mission is just a perception, perception, except in space and time and not in eternity, with us. The son's procession is that he's begotten from the father, right? And then he's begotten as a human baby from Mary. 
That's his mission, right? Begotten eternally, begotten in time. Or think about what we just celebrated last week in Pentecost. We read in Acts about a sound blowing, like a blowing of a violent wind came from heaven. And this indicated that the Holy Spirit was present. This is exactly what we should expect, a blowing wind of the one who is breathed out of the Father and the Son, right? When God shows up in space and time, God is not different from what he is like in all eternity. There isn't a God behind God's back. There isn't a hidden, angry God waiting for you after you found your home and safety in Jesus. The Trinity doesn't allow for it. And that's because the missions and the processions correspond to one another. They match up. Now think back on my lack of a poker face, right? How do you know what's on my inside? By the actions that I perform on the outside, especially my characteristic actions. Knowing this God who is beyond our comprehension is just like that. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit eternally proceeding in a glorious fullness that can never be reduced to human dimensions, nevertheless makes himself known through his actions, specifically the actions of the Father sending the Son and the Spirit to redeem, sustain, protect, and perfect us. Because the Father has sent the Son and the Spirit into our broken and sinful world, we are saved. And this is all over scripture. Consider Hebrews 9. If you have a smartphone, nobody, right? Anybody using paper Bibles anymore? It doesn't matter, right? Hebrews 9, 13 and 14, where all three of the persons of the Trinity are described as agents in the sacrifice of Christ. Here's what it says. For if the blood of goats and bulls with the sprinkling of the ashes of a heifer sanctifies those who have been defiled so that their flesh is purified, here's the kicker, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, the Father, purify our conscience from dead works to worship the living God? All three persons of the Trinity involved in the sacrifice of Christ. Christ offered himself through the Spirit to the Father so that we might be saved. Or think again of that famous verse, John 3, 16. You probably don't need to open your Bibles to know that one by memory, right? For God, and here think of the Father, so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but have eternal life. Notice something about this verse. The sending of the Son is after the fact that he is only begotten. Because he is only begotten, he is sent that we may not perish. One of my favorite verses that connects up the Trinity and the gospel is Galatians 4, 4 through 6. But when the fullness of time had come, God the Father sent his Son, born of a woman, born under a law, in order to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as children. There's the mission of the son. And then it goes on. And because you are children, God, the father again, has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. There's the spirit crying, Abba, father, so you are no longer a slave, but a child. And if a child, then also an heir through God. That's 
Galatians 4, 4 through 6. God the Father sends his begotten son to be born of a woman so that we may be adopted as children. God the Father sends the spirit of his son into our hearts so that we may live as those children. In fact, anytime you see the word send or sent in the Bible relating to God, you should think of the word mission. So if you see the word send, what should you think? Mission. See, I told you there wasn't going to be a quiz. I lied. All right. You with me? You hanging with me? All right. Okay. The point to all of this, all of this nerdery, is that the gospel, what makes us Christians, has a Trinitarian shape. The gospel has a Trinitarian shape. Trinity Sunday is actually not nerd power hour, even though it's beginning to feel that way. (laughs) It's one morning a year where God gives us an overview of the entire ecology of his story. We could not be Christians. We could not have our sins forgiven if the Father had not sent the Son and the Spirit to accomplish our salvation. That is what the Trinity is all about. God enjoys perfect glory in eternity. God extends himself into space and time through his missions. And the purpose of those missions is to save us. Or as 1 John 4, 9, and 10 puts it, God's love was revealed among us in this way. You want to know what God's love is like? That seems pretty important, doesn't it? What is God's love like? God sent, what do you think of? Yeah, there's that word. God sent his only son into the world. Why? So that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son. Why? To be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Father, Son, and Spirit acting in concert to accomplish our salvation. God extends his Trinitarian life to us to save us from our sins. His life is what heals us. Now, there's one more connection to make here, and it has to do with our Genesis reading. (laughs) Didn't think I'd get there. That's a famous passage of the Bible, but it's also a deeply Trinitarian text. For most of church history, the let let us of verse 26 was understood as a reference to the Trinity, the three persons of the Trinity discussing amongst themselves the creation of humanity. Or again, verse 2 talks about the Spirit of God hovering above the waters. Creation is itself a Trinitarian act because when God acts, God never stops being exactly who God God is, all three persons acting together. The Father speaks all things into being through his word, the Son through whom all things were made, with the Spirit bringing all things to their fulfillment. But there is one more Trinitarian element here, the image of God. You might be thinking, what? How is the image of God Trinitarian? I already mentioned that God doesn't look like us, but that we look like God. But that's not quite accurate. Think about it this way. I just had a son. He's over there. When Carla was pregnant, we got lots of questions about our baby. But one of the questions we never got was this. What species will it be? Right? Never got that one. That one was pretty apparent to everyone. Our son was not going to be a squirrel or something like that. He was going to be human, right? 
And that's because you are typically the same kind of thing as the thing that gave birth to you. Straightforward, right? Right? That's not news to anybody. Okay. But now stop to think about the fact that we are daughters and sons of God. That does not sound nearly as strange as it ought to. It ought to sound like the equivalent of my pointing to a squirrel outside and saying, hey, that's my son. Right? So what gives? I'm going to say something counterintuitive. We are not the image of God. We are not the image of God. We are made in the image of God. We are not the image of God. That's a subtle difference. I know, you're thinking, back to nerd power hour, hang with me. Who is the image of God? Christ. We see this in 2 Corinthians 4.4, which mentions Christ, who is the image of God. An image of God has to be the same kind of thing as God. And only those in the Trinity are truly images of one another. But then how are we daughters and sons of God? How are we image bearers? Because God the Father has sent God the Son to bring us into his family. And while the image of God is not something that we can ever lose or erase, it is something that we can grow into as we mature more and more into the image of Christ. And we all with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory. There's all of those words we talked about, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit, says 2 Corinthians 3.18. The image of God is to be found in the Trinity. But that image, the Son himself, who is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, says Hebrews, has been sent to us on our behalf, and then he became one of us. Not that he may look like us, but that we may look like him. And as we love one another with the love that is God, we live further into that fullness into which we've been welcomed, where all desires are met, and we reflect that glory that has been there for all eternity, but now has been given to us in Jesus Christ. And that's the good news of the Trinitarian shape of the gospel. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.